0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: I'd like to welcome everyone to this very unique and timely event on China's potential role in Venezuela's political and humanitarian crisis. I'm Keith Mines, director for Latin America at the U.S. Institute of Peace, a publicly funded but independent institute whose core belief is that peace is possible more often than it is realized, and whose work combines analysis, field work, and convening to seek fresh solutions to the world's conflicts. I'm joined by Henry Tugendhat, a senior policy analyst on USIP's China team, who will moderate our event today. And we're joined also by former Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, Tom Shannon, who will offer some concluding remarks as well as a remarkable panel that henry has assembled and will introduce in a few minutes Yusup is strongly committed to the proposition that at its core the venezuela conflict is political and any solution must focus on the political divides between the various parties inside venezuela we released a report yesterday with our partners at the washington office on latin america with recommendations for a new round of negotiations between the parties. And we continue to work with all sides to support a structure and lineup incentives that would allow a negotiated end to the conflict. But the internal conflict in Venezuela has evolved to have a strong and essential geopolitical component as well. And various countries for their own reasons have taken sides in the conflict. The relationship between China and Venezuela is complex and we hope to explore the roots of the relationship and the impediments to positive engagement on the political and humanitarian sides. We'll also explore the tension in the relationship between China and Venezuela. China has loaned more money to Venezuela than it has to any other country in the world, something over $60 billion. There's been tensions over failed infrastructure projects, embezzlement of funds, failed energy projects, and general dismay over the current Venezuelan economic model. Where do those tensions lead to places of productive engagement? The Venezuelan opposition has also sought to engage with the Chinese and shape the future of the relationship. So that's a lot, uh, and we should get started. We have a lot to cover in just 75 minutes. So I'm going to turn it over now to Henry Thubenhut to kick us off. Thanks, Henry.
2: Thank you so much, Keith and thank you so much to all the speakers for coming today this is really the sort of event that could only happen on zoom because every single one of our speakers is joining us from a different country today Uh, so uh, it's a real pleasure and uh, unique opportunity to speak to you all at the same time about this huge topic Um, our first speaker is going to be Matt Furchin and he actually published a special report for USIP on this very topic last September so please take a look at that on the website if you get a chance But Matt is a a senior fellow, senior research fellow at Leiden University. And he was previously the director of the China and the developing world program at Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing. Uh, He's an established scholar on China Latin America relations. And uh, I'd like to kick off with a question about your special report uh, today. So Matt, as we heard from Keith, this is a crisis that has gathered pace in recent years, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more from Uh, the research that you've been conducting on China, Venezuela about uh, how we got here and what the relationship between China and the Maduro and Chavez government has been over the last two decades
3: great thanks so much for having me henry and uh and i also want to say thanks to jennifer stotts and uh, patricia kim at usip uh for working with me on on that report that came out last september and uh, it's great to be here with all the the other panelists as well so i'm gonna mostly focus on a couple of the themes in my report uh from last year and then the title of that was uh from overconfidence to to uncertainty so let me begin with the uh, the overconfidence part and this focuses on on the early 2000s uh, and uh, the boom period in both economics and, and politics between China and, and Latin America and China and, and Venezuela. So on the, on the economics side of, of the boom, the China-Venezuela relationship was really billed as the poster child for China's win-win rhetoric. Um, and the, the basic background of this was a commodity boom, much led by, by developments in China itself um, that really drove a great deal of new trade especially of exports of raw materials from south america to china in the period from approximately 2003 to 2013. Uh, on the 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 venezuelan story was a, a, a extreme example of this with oil at the center of the relationship venezuela having the largest proven reserves Uh, of oil and China having the greatest oil demand in the world. So the two came together during that period with a focus on on oil. Uh, And the other key component of this is the, the loans for oil arrangements that really fueled this relationship. So a kind of Angola model for Latin America. So loans loans that were backed by commitments of oil sales. And so there a real steep increase in in loans starting around 2007 from from China to to Venezuela uh, for purchases of of oil. And then the the politics side of this uh, also experienced a boom. We saw a real boom in the sort of diplomatic relationship between China and and Latin America, uh, again, with the backing of the, the commodity boom, but really China focused or served as a new diplomatic and, and trade partner for the entire region. Again, with a lot of focus um, on, on South America. This was part of a longer trend of the revival really of China's third world or developing country diplomacy which it had uh, revived around the 2000s, uh, but really built on an experience that focused on Asia and and Africa uh, going back to the the 1950s. But in the case of China and, and Venezuela, the relationship really focused on one individual, Hugo Chavez on the Venezuelan side, who was looking for or to China as a new oil and, and diplomatic partner. And then on the on the Chinese side, it was the China Development Bank, which was looking to, to South America and to Venezuela in particular uh, for its global energy ambitions. And really Venezuela was its biggest bet at the time and, and still continues to be uh, a superlative in terms of the CDB um, loans to to the region uh, and anywhere in the world um the the real disappointing part of the relationship then began uh, after the 2010s this be really really focused on the the time when hugo chavez became ill and then died so period between 2011 and 2013 the relationship already had a variety of challenges and difficulties before then but certainly after maduro uh, became uh president uh things became much more difficult than they were even under under chavez is. uh this was quickly followed then by the oil market crash around 2014 which was all followed by both a combination of economic political and social crisis uh, that have just continued to continue to deepen in the meantime uh china's started to slow its lending and then completely cut it off around uh, 2016, but uh, certainly after 2017, but has not abandoned diplomatic support uh, for for Maduro. Uh, And in the meantime, U.S., became increasingly wary of China's role in the region and in particular in in Venezuela. And that leads us to where we are now, a period of uncertainty and and stasis. Uh, China has more or less uh, had its head in the sand, uh, neither overtly criticizing uh, uh, Venezuela and the situation, nor offering as much support as say Russia. Uh, And this at the same time that there's growing global concern about the sustainability of China's development, Ending. So where we are now is back at the, the question of what can or should uh, China do as we think about political solutions to the
2: crisis. And I look forward to the discussion about that today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. And uh, uh, that period from 2016 onwards is going to be particularly interesting to explore why China stopped lending and what that's meant for the relationship thereafter. Um, I, I'm going to, turn to Deputy Albert Barrios now, uh, who comes to us with a very unique perspective. She is uh, elected, she was elected to Venezuela's National Assembly in 2015, and she's a representative from Caracas. Uh, and from 2019 to January of this year, Deputy Barrios has acted as the Vice President of the Venezuelan Opposition's Permanent Committee for External Relations. So, Deputy Barrios, uh, as someone who's worked with both the Juan Guaidó and uh, and Enrique Capriles teams, I I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the view of the relationship with China from the opposition's perspective. Uh, In particular, you know, what have been the most promising lines of communication with China so far and what role would you like to see China play or Chinese companies play? Thank you.
4: Thank you very much. Hi everyone, and um, nice to see you. I'm living in Caracas and keep the fight for the liberty and democracy future in Venezuela. Well, we recognize that China has been an important actor in the last ten years for Venezuela, especially for Chavismo. It has been precisely with them that they have maintained a relationship that seems to go beyond the commercial. We also consider what China means for the Latin American region currently, in recent years especially. Where it has increased its presence by execu- executing a cooperation agenda <inaudible> and investment more, so we see with the so called diplomacy or vacuum diplomacy recently, with a geopolitical scenario that passed in the future of Latin America, but in Venezuela, especially. There are many statements that point to China as an actor that doesn't want to interfere in the Venezuelan conflict, except to warrant interests that's this pragmatist. But it's also true that in recent years, we know there in any other Venezuelan class, China didn't even link up with the 2015 National Assembly. It hasn't. So this certainly leaves a great challenge for the opposition. So let's look at the causes first. Polarization in Venezuela is part of political and humanitarian crisis that the country is going through. Generates a real climate of uncertainty for allies on both sides. This uncertainty increases the risks of those who have approached the bed of any political project. Only a true claim of reinstitutionalization in the country could make the change. That is why the importance of what may happen in the coming month in Venezuela. We speak of the importance of rescuing the vote as a democratic mechanism, of rescuing the power of the vote within a reinstitutionalization institutionalization that allows us to work for the rescue of institutions, that allows us to... Re- agreements that envision more stability and less polarization. As long as its interests are respected, in Venezuela's case, their interests have to do with all, with the ability to pay the debt that exists with China, but also with the possibilities that China can continue to invest in country in the future. We are sure that the relationship between China and Venezuela is not the only uncertain bilateral relationship, but we are differentiated by the geopolitical approach that both countries have for the region and for its future. And on other hand, consider the statements that on one occasion, the spokesman for the Minister of Foreign Affairs from China has suggested in the past. He said um, about the relationship between Beijing and Caracas and should not be undermined. It was in the context of 2019. Perhaps showing his willingness to be able to have a relations with a different government always that ensures loan payments in exchange for oil now this different government cannot be the product of immediate of our maximalist policies i mean politics is not a matter of immediacy in recent years, the discourse has unfortunately been like this. Discourse like Maximalist, discourse about yes or yes, discourse about all or nothing. And that generates uncertainty. Uncertainty for China and for any ally, ally of the regime or ally of the opposition. So China's pragmatism make it necessary to take into account its interests so that it can support a solution in Venezuela. Hence, we cannot expect that China will have a potential role in the process of re-institutionalization of the country without guarantees, without guarantees of compliance with the commitments that Venezuela has assumed in a legal framework. Up to now, China seems to be relatively comfortable with Maduro's government. Although it remains silent, it's also true that it doesn't turn its back on them. We don't see China as part of a process of dialogue or a process of agreements. China will surely be there when these agreements guarantee its interests. Finally, Mind well, Beijing will remain playing with however gives the greatest signs of institutionality, institutionality, power and stability. Let us remember that above its commercial interests, there will also be its geopolitical strategy for the region. For this reason, Venezuela is key. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Deputy Barrios. And thank you for the very sober view on the significance of the domestic political situation for the future engagements with China. Um, I'm going to uh, come back to a lot of what you said in the questions and answers. But uh, for now, let's move to uh, Mengqi Yuan, who is an assistant researcher on China, Latin America issues at Tsinghua University's Institute for International and, Asian, uh, and Area Studies. Um, she recently finished her PhD on, uh, China's, uh, political economic engagements in Latin America. Uh, and she's calling to us, uh, from Beijing, um, Meng in your PhD research, I know that you largely focused on China, Argentina relations, but I know that you've also been working more broadly on China, Latin America, um, uh, strategic interests, and political economic engagement. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the view from Beijing and how. Uh, Venezuela compares to China's other relationships uh, in the Latin American region.
5: Uh, thanks to host Henry and also my advisor Matt to invite me to participate. Uh, actually yesterday I saw news that Mahan airline which is a Shanghai airline and Venezuela airline launched a route from Guangzhou, to Tehran and Caracas a weekly based flight to facilitate exchange between China and Venezuela so I suppose that the relationship between China and Venezuela is still going well and for my uh, talk I would have to address like three uh, points the first one is like I want to mention the importance of China and Venezuela relationship as mentioned in his paper Venezuela and China by 2014 we had uh, evaluated uh, diplomatic diplomatic ties to the level of a comprehensive strategic partnership, the second highest among China's diplomatic partnership type. And in 2018, uh, Maduro's visit to China, he was public support the Chinese belt and Road initiative and also signed the memorandum of understanding to participate in it. For China, the investment of uh, this investment can bring the political returns like for Central Asia will not mentioned here. And in 2019, Venezuela is China's fourth largest uh, source of oil imports and China's largest loan commitment in the world. It is also China's fourth largest trading partner and the largest uh, engineering project market in Latin America. China is also Venezuela's second largest trading partner, largest investor and largest creditor country. Then during the COVID time, China sent medical supplies as oxygen concentrators to Venezuela as well, as well as vaccines. Like on the May of 24th in the news this year, there was a arrival of 1.3 million COVID-19 vaccines from China arriving in, in Venezuela. So I think that for the relationship among those like uh, main steps, we are still, still staying good. And this year also in the uh, April 27th, the Chinese uh, top legislator Shu uh, held a talk with the president of Venezuela's National Assembly Jorge Rodriguez via uh, the video link. And the two sides agreed to strengthen the exchanges and cooperation between the legislative bodies. Uh, Li also mentioned that no matter how the international and regional situation changes China will maintain its solidarity and cooperation policy with Venezuela and support the country in exploring a development developmental path that suits its own national condition so the importance of Venezuela to China is quite large no matter what kind of political situation it's going to be and on the other hand, as Maria Bat mentioned that China was staying silent silence for the political change of Venezuela. I think that for the, this is the uh, second point that I want to address that for the Venezuela domestic issue, uh, basically Chinese long-standing non-interference approach uh, to foreign policy is the driven force behind the, his reluctance to join the public cause for political changes in Venezuela. This is the, like the first level of it. And the second level, in 2020 May, the President Xi Jinping at the meeting of the political bureau of the Central Committee of Communist Party of China, he first mentioned the concept is called the Newer Circulation Development Pattern. Now. This is the central of China's recent development policies. I mean, even in our academic areas, we are talking more about this dual circulation development pattern than the other ones. Uh, this strategy means an economic development pattern that takes domestic development as the mainstay, With domestic and international development reinforcing each other, this policy was to rely on the internal circulation making a domestic production distribution and consumption as the engine of the economic growth which means in the other side the Chinese expansion to the other countries or to Latin America to Venezuela gonna be less uh, that tight related as before so even now, the Belt and Road initiative policies stay a little bit in silence in our domestic discussions. Under this broader policy view, China is not putting that much of effort in expanding, like getting the influence in Latin America or in other regions. Uh, for this one, I think it maybe answer a little bit about how is the central uh, government think about what we should do now. And for the third point i want to address how is the, the chinese latin american research going now because we think that's still important for not for only for the venezuelan studies for all the Latin American studies that we are trying to uh, have more the future understanding of it like during the 2000 and 2010 to 2020 there are more than 50 institutes for Latin American studies like created in China, mostly in Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou, 16 of them are registered in the Ministry of uh, Education as a research center and base. And, but in China, we have only one peer reviewed journal for Latin American studies that we can publish on it, which is the Journal of Latin American Studies. This is created in 1979. Uh, and for the recent 20 years, there are around like 1,200 papers for the study of specific countries as like uh, Brazil, Mexico, Chile, Argentina, Cuba, Peru, Venezuela. Uh, in all in, in of these other papers, Venezuela has like papers has 23 of them like we counted, which means that first we want to study it, but maybe we have really few people or team or support for it. And, in the next 10 years, China is going to publish a total of 50 books on historical cultural and humanistic topics of Latin America. Uh, this is will be uh, done by the Peking University Publishing House and the Central for China and Latin American Studies. So it means that we have a history to study Latin America or Venezuela, but we have only really few people and team and resources. And in my institute, as uh, Harry mentioned, I'm from Institute for International Area Studies of Tsinghua. We have our next year, the PhD recruiting uh, plan for Venezuela studies because we found it's really essential and important. But we also put Venezuela and Colombia together because after we interviewing the past 10 years of students that they want to study Latin America, they will not choose Venezuela first of the security issue that they cannot stay there for doing the two-year long-term uh, field work uh, second is that they are afraid of the um, these connections between china and latin america so we are trying to uh, attracting students to go to maybe colombia and then they can travel to venezuela to do the failed work uh, so here are the uh, three points i want to mention that first is that Venezuela is really important to China, even during the COVID time or in the future. And second is that because of our uh, traditional policies, non-interfering one, and also now the dual dual circulation development pattern give us the less opportunity to go outside. And the third one is that in our academic areas, we try to focus more knowledge about Latin America and more knowledge about Venezuela. We are still studying. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Munchi. That was great. Um, and um, I, I certainly want to hear more about uh, how those uh, relationships and those studies grow as as, uh, as you go on. Uh, I'm going to turn now to Adriana abdinur We've got two more speakers who are going to be giving their opening remarks, and then we'll sw- switch over to the question and answers. But uh, moving to Adriana. So Adriana is the Uh, co-founder and executive director of Plataforma Cipó, which is an independent women-led institute based in Brazil and dedicated to issues of climate, governance and peace in Latin America. And Adriana Abinur is uh, an expert on China-Latin America relations. She's uh, calling to us from Rio this morning and she's also been following the um, tensions between Brazil and Venezuela over the migration flows uh, over the last few years. Uh, and so uh based on that very sort of unique combination of expertise i wanted to ask you Adriana, about that uh you know this is a this is obviously a, a humanitarian crisis that has regional implications and brazil is uh, obviously one of uh, venezuela's most important neighbors uh, and we've got millions of refugees flowing across the northern borders um so i i was wondering could you tell us what the view from brazil is in terms of what role china could play and how Uh, Brazil's relationship with China um, may address that.
0: Uh, Sure, and thank you very much for the invitation to be part of this discussion. Hello from Rio de Janeiro. I wanted to start by saying that uh, I'm very pleased to see this discussion move in the direction of peaceful resolution because at the beginning of the current government in Brazil, of Jair Bolsonaro, the uh, now ex-Foreign Minister was floating the idea of using Roraima, which is the main Amazon state that has been receiving Venezuelan refugees as a corridor for a hypothetical uh, U.S. military invasion of uh, Venezuela. And at the time, we were carrying out research in that part of the Amazon and were very alarmed um, because, of course, the regional spillover effects would be absolutely disastrous for the entire region. So thinking about not only China, but the U.S. in light of peaceful resolution of conflict is absolutely essential as a start. Point. Now, uh, South America, as you already uh, no, is one of the regions in the world in which China comes in, into, I think, increase, under increasing uh, pressure to calibrate its um, foreign policy discourse of non intervention. And as Matt put it, this tendency to kind of keep its head buried in the sand, um, with the fact that its presence and influence in the region has expanded and diversified so fast, um, starting with trade and investment, but really moving into all other sectors and and aspects of life. And so while China does not yet have a direct role in the humanitarian response to the refugee crisis that's coming out of Venezuela, we we know that according to UNHCR figures, 5.4 million Venezuelans have fled the country. Most of them are now found in other south american countries primarily colombia peru ecuador chile brazil and argentina so um you know there is a growing expectation of Uh, positive constructive engagement by external actors. And of course, that includes um, China. So what I'm going to do is, is to say a little bit about China's changing role and stance with respect to refugee crisis more broadly, because China's changing role in global governance is really relevant to this particular debate It's not just about the geopolitics and then i'll point out three areas where we believe there could be um, Potential future engagement by china in this particular crisis. So When china historically when when china engages with issues of refugees um, It tends to focus Either be very standoffish or focus on the issue of whether China itself should have accept refugees. And for the most part, the response by Chinese actors has been no. But it's important to know that China is a signatory to you know, main conventions around uh, refugee and humanitarian crisis. And that includes the 1951 refugee conventions, the accompany protocol. And even though China hasn't established its own mechanism for uh, dealing with refugees in China, it kind of outsources that to UNHCR. In other regions, it's really interesting and relevant to observe that China actually has begun to engage very concretely um, with a refugee crisis, not yet. in some. America but we'll look at that as an extension into a potential role Um, and what we can say is that you know just looking at Chinese media recently um, uh, we noticed that a lot of pieces have been emphasizing China's long-standing relationship with the UNHCR, but also noting that uh, there's an acknowledgement of increasing expectations around China's role in humanitarian crisis, including international refugee relief. And the new institutions that have been established by China to deal with humanitarian crises through its South-South cooperation um, Uh, initiatives have already been engaging. So we've been mapping out some of these engagements. For instance, the China International Development Cooperation Agency, I believe it's called in English, and the Associated South-South Cooperation Assistance Fund. They are already engaging um, with a number of different initiatives. They provide uh, education and shelter for refugee populations. There are recent agreements uh, between these institutions and UNHCR. For instance, to help refugees and other groups in Kenya, Tanzania, South Sudan, uh, especially in light of the pandemic and drawing on China's very long tradition of South-South cooperation and health, um, China has provided emergency supplies to Afghanistan, especially for uh, refugees and and returned uh, displaced people. And it's also donated equipment uh, to assist Palestinian uh, refugees. So these are very important precedents to point out if we're trying to think of constructive engagement, even beyond the political level. Um, So here are three areas in which we believe that China could play Um, a more uh, constructive role with respect specifically to the uh, Venezuelan situation. The first one is is through the UN system. And as I just mentioned, the new development institutions in China already have um, uh, frameworks for cooperation and they have these precedents. So this could um, somewhat easily be extended to the South American uh, context. Um, Another mode of engagement would be uh, at a regional level. Now, this is complicated by the fact that, unfortunately, we're living through a moment here in South America in which regional arrangements and cooperation initiatives are either paralyzed due to political infighting. Some of that has to do with Venezuela, of course, or lack of commitment. And so health cooperation, which historically has been very strong in our region, has completely choked, to use a U.S. baseball uh, phrase, in light of the pandemic. Very little is going on. Um, But China does have very good relationships with some of the regional arrangements, including the community of Latin American states, and so that's potentially an area that could be harnessed, um, if not at the political level right now, certainly at sort of the operational logistical level. And then finally, I think we also have to think about um, Chinese investments in the region, and our our organization is carrying out um, analyses of. Uh, Chinese investments that cut across the uh, Amazon region, for instance, the railroad, massive railroad projects that are being planned and looking at the sustainability, social and climate dimensions of these major investments. And so if Chinese official foreign policy discourse um, underscores the need to stem the flow of refugees and to help people return to their home countries by providing stability and development in those countries, Um, I think we can say that these massive investment projects that are being planned throughout the region really have to comply better with Uh, social and environmental considerations whether or not we're talking about countries that have incorporated themselves into the belt and road initiatives or as is the case of brazil that are negotiating um, you know specific initiatives and this is absolutely crucial because we know that the type of massive scale and very fast infrastructure development that china has been carrying out can under certain circumstances also lead to massive displacement so this is a an absolutely uh, essential area. Now, I'm gonna close by saying that, you know, obviously uh, Brazil at the moment um, is not the most uh, focused on uh, whether multilateral cooperation or bilateral cooperation. It really has shut its doors on a lot of its strategic partners. That includes not only China, but also the neighboring countries. There have been some changes, The the previous foreign minister, has been replaced and the replacement by the way happened primarily because of his the previous one's anti china stances and um so there has been to some degree in Certain parts are returned to more traditional emphasis on negotiation of economic ties, but obviously we can't expect under the current government here for there to be any kind of major constructive engagement, whether with China or with Venezuela at a political level. But we do have presidential elections coming up next year. So there could be a government change and that could constitute yet another channel for China to engage in. Uh, with the Venezuelan refugee crisis, whether through bilateral collaboration with Brazil or at a more regional level, if those channels are uh, taken up again by major regional players. I'll stop here, but I'm looking forward to our discussion. So, obrigada.
2: Thank you very much, Adriana, that was fantastic. I and mean, it's uh, really interesting to hear about the uh, social environmental considerations as well uh, that you raised, I think they, they really matter. Uh, and I'm sure they'll come up in the questions, especially with regards to BRI and so forth. So thank you for that. Um, last speaker, uh, but certainly not least, Joe Tucker is coming to, according to us, from Khartoum in Sudan, and he actually comes to this panel with a very unique perspective uh, because he worked uh, as a special, uh, as a U.S. special envoy to S- Sudan and South Sudan between 2009 and 2013 where he actually collaborated with Chinese counterparts over the peace process um, uh, at the time. And so in particular, what's interesting about Joe's perspective is that he was working with the China National Petroleum Corporation uh, and Chinese diplomats in South Sudan at the time. And of course, uh, CNPC is also uh, a very significant player in Venezuela and represents one of China's most important representations in the country. Um, And so, Joe, I wanted to turn to you to ask you a little bit about what that uh, experience was like in practice in terms of U.S. China collaborations over a peace process. And um, in particular, I I was interested um, about uh, how those two institutions um, differed and how you engaged with them, because uh, at the time, China was very forthright that the CNPC actually ranked higher than the Chinese ambassador uh, in negotiating uh, the peace process. And that was the same in Libya, of course, before. And so I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the differences between those two institutions and what it was like uh, as a US representative to work over common goals towards a peace process. Thanks very much, Henry. And lest anyone think I
6: was the special envoy, I, I just happened to work with the special envoy uh, at the State Department. So uh, just to give sort of important minute of context, um, which is important here, um, is that this collaboration between US and China took place really in the of context of the implementation of Sudan's 2005 Comprehensive Peace Agreement uh, that ended a long running civil war, um, as well as uh, negotiations of issues between Sudan and South Sudan uh, in the wake of South Sudan independence in 2011. And this of course was a very unique moment in time for all countries involved. Um, China devoted substantial political energy with both sides to really ensure that its political and economic interests were protected, but this engagement was really not, not guaranteed. Um, during the early years of this period, China really refrained from direct engagement with both sides on complicated issues. And that of course included tensions over the oil sector, which of course uh, CNPC, as Henry noted, was heavily involved um, in. However, uh, when it became clear that that peace really hinged on the timely conduct of a referendum uh, on South Sudan's independence, the Sudan policies of the China and the US actually converged. Uh, on the one hand, China saw a scenario in which a referendum could happen and be implemented in a relatively peaceful manner, uh, thus ensuring uninterrupted, uninterrupted oil production. Uh, important caveat here is that production was indeed interrupted, um, but there's not time to go into that um, right now. Um, on the other hand, uh, the US could, could see the successful holding Um, of the referendum on time, and really as a key part of the peace process reflecting um, the will of Southern Sudanese. Uh, Again, important caveat here that the eruption of civil war in South Sudan in 2013 has caused a lot of reflection um, on this, on the conduct of negotiations, and there's not enough time to go into that here, but an important uh, thing to mention. So negotiations between Sudan and South Sudan after this period uh, were contentious, especially on agreement arrangements, including transit fees uh, for the transit of southern Sudanese oil uh, to Port Sudan on the Red Sea uh, for export. Um, the African Union and international community um, engaged both parties heavily on the need for an agreement on this, and um, Chinese officials, especially on the CMPC side. We played an interesting, though, quiet role in one particular aspect of these negotiations. Uh, Oil companies that were involved in a multinational pipeline consortium um, began to really engage both parties on the margin of talks sponsored by the African Union uh, in Ethiopia. Um, The unofficial leader of this group was a really, really dynamic um, head of CNPC in Sudan, a really uh, good engager of all parties an interesting um, person in this context. He really articulated concerns uh, of the companies about the situation. um, And on one occasion, I remember very well, sort of formulated um, a proposal uh, to try and break a serious deadlock and really shuttle between both parties on sort of night and day um, as we witnessed in Ethiopia. Um, This effort did not succeed, uh, but was really a quiet attempt with the, the knowledge of, of Chinese officials in both Beijing and Sudan by really an empowered, um, I think it's appropriate word, Chinese actor to really try to shift the political situation to try and preserve not only economic interests, but create a more conducive uh, situation for peace and finalizing these important ranges between the two countries. Um, Again, this this converged with U.S. interests and engagement, and a lot of this was discussed between U.S. and Chinese diplomats. Um, as well as with CNPC officials, depending on um, on the issue. There was a lot of good communication and flexibility on that side that I want to stress. So um, also it's important to know that this, this Chinese intervention was actually recognized by the international community. Um, in November, 2011, uh, the Financial Times devoted an article to this and, and recognized China by saying, quote, it made a rare intervention. So this issue was engagement Um, again, by diplomats and and oral sector officials on what was fundamentally a a problematic political issue, making this intervention sort of all the more interesting. There are a number of other examples I won't bear into that much, Um, engagement between uh, President Obama and then Chinese Vice President Xi, the Chinese Foreign Minister, then Secretary Clinton. and, And this was all amidst wider discussions between the special envoy from the US and China and his staff on these issues. I also wanna note here that you know, the, the issue of the CMPC officials outweighing Chinese diplomats is interesting, definitely needs further research. And in my experience, uh, the following three things summarize this dynamic and Chinese engagement at this time. One, the timing of, of when respective actors actually engaged. Uh, two, the need for great internal communication both within the Chinese side. Um, and between US and China um, across the board. And um, third, being responsive quickly when openings um, arise. The intervention from CNPC in Ethiopia I was talking about happened over the course of a number of hours. Um, And lastly, there are of course a lot of complexities involved But I also want to mention an additional three things here that it was really important that um, mutual foreign policy interests between China and the U.S. aligned at this moment. That was absolutely critical and in very many ways was was unique and again wasn't guaranteed. Um, two, you know, the tr- trying to engage on the widest possible range of issues so that issues of interest can sort of be, be aligned even if one party is focusing on an economic issue or a political issue. And lastly, really trying to ensure the broadest possible engagement at all levels among and between senior government officials, private sector representatives, embassies, and even at the working level where I was. Um, my counterparts on the staff of the Chinese Special Envoy and embassies in Khartoum in Washington were really a pleasure um, uh, to work with, I should add. So I'll leave it at that. Happy to answer uh, questions. And thanks for having me on what's a relatively obscure topic within the context of this discussion. So thank you.
2: Oh, thank you. Your, your, your remarks are just uh, uh, so rich and valuable in the context of this conversation, because of course there are so many parallels to be drawn uh, between uh, South Sudan and Venezuela in terms of US-China engagements over uh, um, the peace process and oil. And of course, Matt Furchin alludes to a lot of this in his paper. Um, And and, uh, I'd also like to follow up by saying thank you all so much for keeping your remarks so succinct, because we've now got uh, a really good time to dive into some questions and answers. So I'm going to start with a question about Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan has become increasingly engaged in Venezuela um, and the questioner asks what has that entailed and what are politics around recognition of Taiwan within the Venezuelan opposition and then how do you think this affects the Maduro government's relations with China? Uh, I might direct that question about Taiwan to uh, Matt and to um, Maria Albert to begin with.
3: I don't have much to say on this as I am unaware of what's going on between uh, between Taiwan uh, and and Venezuela at, at this point. Certainly, you know, the Taiwanese relationship with Latin American and Caribbean countries has been strained uh, in the last few years as countries have changed diplomatic recognition, um, and and certainly this puts more uh, puts more weight or, or pressure on Taiwan to expand its possible interests where where it can. One thing I do allude to in the paper is the sort of creative diplomacy uh, that the opposition has, has been using in terms of reaching out to whatever partners uh, it might be able to find um, to come up with creative solutions and it doesn't surprise me uh, that, that those would also in, include taiwan again against this backdrop of decreasing official dip- diplomatic recognition including from central american and, and caribbean countries uh, but i would hand it over to maria to to talk about some of the specifics if she's aware of them Maria albert could i invite you to
2: share some remarks on
4: taiwan Excuse, excuse me. Can you repeat, please, uh, the question? Because I have problem with my connection. This is Venezuela.
2: So- Absolutely, and and please feel free to speak with your video off if uh, the if it makes the connection better. Uh, but the question was: uh, Taiwan has become increasingly engaged in Venezuela. What has that entailed, and what are the politics around the recognition of Taiwan within the Venezuelan opposition? How do you think this affects the Maduro Maduro government's relations with China?
4: Yeah, uh, well, the, there are two points of view about this this problem, okay, if I, if I couldn't say. The four is the last year National Assembly looking for uh, a special club because Taiwan uh, held with issues uh, about against COVID, like masks, like alcohol and another medicines. And on the other hand, China always uh, fight with South diplomacy in this case, especially. Uh, No interfere because I have the problem with Taiwan or Hong Kong and I don't want anybody in in uh, participation in this
5: in these points so we're,
4: we're you having you
2: know some, what
4: I mean
2: we're having some problems with your connection I don't suppose you could try turning your, your video off and just making that last point one more time
4: okay
2: uh, I think we'll come back to Mad- in a second because we're having some connection issues, but I'll just move on to the second question and I'll come back to you, Maria, in a few seconds. Um, So the second question we received is uh, is about uh, China's investments. And it's saying that uh, China is currently taking measures to counter corruption among its own public and private sector companies. Its investments and relationships in Venezuela may be exposed to risks in this regard. How could this affect their approach to Venezuela and support for the re-institutionalization process via dialogue with the opposition? Uh, Meng Chi, uh, I'd like to call on you and then Adriana as well uh, to talk from your perspectives on the political economic implications.
5: I actually like study quite a few about the political engagement of China with Venezuela. My major area actually is about populism, but I think that talking about the counter corruption issues in the Chinese private sectors and it may like have an influence in first in the Chinese uh, economy. And for uh, the Chinese view, actually. I talked with some state-owned companies, employees, they work in Latin America, some of them, they work in Venezuela. Uh, their problem about how to do the collaborations between them is that first. Um, the, actually, the corruption issues in the Venezuela, the Maduro government is quite serious for their perspective. Uh, which they don't think that everything is going well. And also the future projects, they have a really uh, serious concern about how it's going to be, or where is the road going to be leading. And uh, for the second part, actually, it's like uh, aside apart from the, counter corruption issues is that uh, for the working culture is quite different. So the Chinese economic engagement in Venezuela is also going to be a problem that you issue a more uh, stable uh, development in between of these two countries. Um, and for the uh, future view about how is the oppositions gonna be, uh, the political opposition in Venezuela gonna be uh, working with the Chinese um, uh, politics. Um, Here are some uh, diversities about how the Venezuela gonna, uh, process or gonna develop in the future in the academic Usually the, the Chinese has a sympathy on the leftist government in Latin America uh, from the Peking University, from Tsinghua University for, for the uh, Chinese Academy of Social Science. Major, the, the major group of the academy, they have a sympathy on the left government. So when you're talking about opposition in Venezuela, they don't have that kind of equal view about what they're doing. So even for the Uh, counter-corruption issues or for the other political issues i think the main main part of the chinese government or any academic groups they are not going to be aligned with the oppositions Uh, i think that can be answered a part of it thank you
2: thank you yes and um, i I see that this uh, uh, desire to address corruption uh, and uh, broader implication of chinese investments ties uh very smoothly in with Adriana. <clears throat> Sorry, Adriana's work on uh environmental and social uh, social implications of some of China's investments. Uh and so I was wondering if you could uh speak a little bit more about the uh institutional constraints that these Chinese uh companies are dealing with, but also uh the extent to which they have control and ha- and and there are accountability mechanisms for what they're um what they were uh, the way that they uh, engage in Venezuela and, and the region.
0: Uh, sure, thank you for the question. So um, we often hear umbrella statements about the Chinese model of investments in the region or across the developing world. But what we have found in our research is that it's, there's a very dynamic process of institutional learning and even mutual learning where Chinese actors will come into a country here in uh, South America, and they will gradually change the way that they behave in response not only to local regulations but also the the degree of knowledge that they gradually acquire about investing in that particular setting. And I can speak more about the Brazilian context than the Venezuelan context, but uh, the relevance to corruption is also very important. What we have found, and we we have a paper coming out through the Carnegie Endowment for Peace that looks at Chinese investment in in railroads in the um, environmentally sensitive Cerrado and Amazon regions is that they resort to a number of strategies over time, and they include political dialogue at the highest levels. And this, in the case of Brazil, happens because negotiations have to go through the federal government. Uh, States, uh, as in the provincial level, cannot negotiate independently of the federal government. So there are political contacts, but also joint ventures, mergers and acquisitions, especially support companies. So, for instance, engineering um, consulting companies that work on railways. And this way, they become better acquainted with the public auction processes and all of the other bureaucratic, but also political discussions, including the very sharp ones taking place about, for instance, displacement of indigenous peoples and et cetera. With respect to corruption, obviously, that also intercedes equation, in part because uh, the whole corruption debate, especially here in Brazil, has acquired such a vast dimension. We had the car wash uh, probe and and part of it, the the more debated one, I think has to do with, you know, it put um, ex-president Lula in prison and, and that was invalidated by a superior court. But there was another aspect of it, which had to do with the corruption practices of Brazil-based transnational companies that were operating in other countries, precise region that we're talking about, including Venezuela. So when we talk about foreign investments, including Chinese investments in South America, we also have to understand that this interacts with what's going on at regionally but nationally too to produce very different results. So again, we have to avoid umbrella statements about how you know, investments for country X tend to fuel corruption. There is very, uh, there's a lot of variation, even within a single sector in a particular uh, country so it has to be looked at on a case-by-case basis
2: thank you very much and that actually uh relates to another question uh that we've just received which is about uh who is actually in the driver's seat in china's venezuela policy at this point is it uh energy state-owned enterprises is it the banks is it the state foreign policy apparatus uh and uh i might go back to matt uh for this
3: question if that's okay it's a great question and my honest answer is i don't know uh i would say that you know i, I stuck pretty strongly to my my claims my feeling that the cdb was the most important actor on the chinese side uh, you know in the case like in the, if the you know the comparison with sudan makes sense instead of instead of the the oil company it was it was the cdb the largest bank in in the world um that took a huge punt on on venezuela um i don't know if that is still the case i still think that their institutional interests are the largest in terms of the loan portfolio um They're still incredibly important part of all of China's development finance. Um, That said, some of the people who made the decisions originally uh, during the the Chavez area and were doing the five, 10, 20 billion dollar loan tranches, those people are now out and and retired. And some of this links up with some of the corruption Potential for for allegations of of corruption charges being being leveled. I, I I always thought there was potential for that in the case of of the CDB um, and having that sort of Venezuela portfolio maybe taken taken away from from them. But I still think they have the largest stake as an actor in in China. Um, that said, I. I this, a comment on me not knowing. Um, it's now been a while since I've been able to be in the discussions that I used to be involved in. That's when I worked in uh, in China, when I was at Tsinghua University, when I worked with Carnegie Tsinghua. So much of what I knew came from those discussions uh, on China-Venezuela relations, often behind closed doors during coffee breaks, people coming up to me asking me what I thought, even if they presented something different in in the meeting and, and genuinely curious. And I would say that it's a real, one of the negative outcomes of what, so what we can know as researchers, but also government to government about what's going on. One of the tragedies of the lack of linkages that we have now as researchers is this, the inability to, to know. So that's a bit of a punt on on, on this question um, that, I, that I really don't know, but I feel that that's the sort of, we need to have those kind of connections, again, to be able to, as, as outside researchers, be able, able to have more insight about who's, who's in control.
2: Thank you. Uh, that was excellent. And yeah. Um, I'd love to hear more about some of those behind the scenes conversations, because I'm sure there's a lot more to be said, uh, based on, uh, your colleagues' experience on this. And, uh, I'd also like to come back to Joe a little bit about his expertise. This might be a little abstract based on <clears throat> how you engage with uh, chinese counterparts in south sudan but uh it's a, a great question and i I'd, I'd like to punt it to you about uh china's perspective and what could be an attractive option uh to support in terms of negotiations design or model um and what would allow them to exert constructive influence and protect their economic interests
6: it's really a really a great question and You know of course i want to bear down on the point i made at the outset of my remarks is that it really really was an incredibly unique period in time that that i you know i wonder if that could exist again that being said a key thing which i didn't really get into detail was that these negotiations um on the sort of arrangements between Sudan and south sudan in the wake of latter's independence um were facilitated by the african union and that's key here because that gave a certain well, oh, I would say, comfort level to everyone involved, whether that was the UN system, the US, China, countries like Norway, UK that have been associated with this because you know they, there was a real desire to substantively support the African Union through these negotiations. And if another s- stakeholder, another sort of maybe non-African regional bloc or entity tried to do this, I, I, I wonder if China especially CNPC, would have taken um, as, as proactive and helpful a role? I, I want to say my answer, uh, that, that would be no, they wouldn't, but I, I don't know the sort of inner workings of, of Chinese foreign policy and intervention to comment on that, but I think that was key here. So what structure do a set of negotiations with a model, what does that look like that would give Chinese actors the sort of the desire and the comfort to participate in that? And when I when I mentioned this, I, I think it was really remarkable that uh, the head of CMPC, the Chinese embassy in both Ethiopia and Sudan, really I think they felt comfortable in engaging with the US on these issues and engaging with the parties to the African Union because they didn't have to really get out too far ahead of this. Um, and I think that was that was key. Um next, it was really interesting. I mean, the the need for the utmost flexibility in that design or model. The negotiations sort of went on, you know, from day to day schedules and really impossible to pin down. Sometimes there'd be days where um, sort of they had to be on pause and then they'd sort of, um, you know, recover and move on. And you just really had to be sort of really hip to when you could engage. And so in terms of a design and a model, really having that flexibility and incredible communication among the mediators, the facilitators, the parties themselves is really key, and I, I commend the African Union. We're really, really trying hard on that front and, and inviting this this flexibility from all sides. Um, lastly, and like this is the part of the response I think is, is less uh, uh, baked in my mind, but I'll mention it anyways. Is it, a division of labor. I mean, I think people realized that there were certain there, were, there was a range of topics that that were negotiated, and. You know, I don't think the Chinese would have felt comfortable um, engaging on security arrangements on disputed border areas, and that was fine. The U.S., the Troika, the U.N., the African Union knew, you know, which which set of actors was best um, suited to help with something. That was key too. So that design and that model absolutely has to take into account in a detailed way what particular thematic areas can someone engage on. Because if you if you sort of messed it up and you sort of suggest that an actor work on a certain issue that I'm comfortable with, I think that that sort of can do a bit of harm. So I'll I'll leave it at that, but happy to answer any follow-up. Thanks, Henry.
2: Thank you so much, Chair. And we're just coming up to time. So I'm gonna uh, turn back to Maria just quickly to see if we can get a quick uh, one-minute remark on Taiwan, if that's okay. Uh, And then I'm gonna turn it over to Ambassador Shannon for his closing remarks.
4: Thank you, Henry. And sorry again for my connection. Well, yes, in the, the last year, there was a group of parliamentaries, mem- uh, member of parliamentary, who joined in the recognition of Taiwan about the policy policy, like observator in national general and WHO, okay? But uh, we recognize the pragmatism of China is so, so, so strong that um, happened the same point that in who the Taiwan uh, keeps silent, okay, and China uh, keep firm or strong in his position. We, we think, okay, that this situation just joined China with government of Maduro and keep the position China to silent and to maintain the distance with the opposition in Venezuela.
2: Thank you. Thank you for keeping it brief too. That gives us just enough time to uh, get uh, some closing remarks from Ambassador Shannon. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Ambassador Shannon is a U.S. diplomat who served the undersecretary of state for political affairs from 2016 to 2018 in the us and from 2005 to 2009 he was assistant secretary of state for western hemisphere affairs and from 2010 to 2013 he was the u.s ambassador to brazil um, thank you very much ambassador I'll, I'll turn it over to you
7: thank you very much henry and thank you keith it's a great pleasure to be here at this event uh, it's quite remarkable when you look across all the the panelists and see where they're beaming in from uh, and the remarkable things they've had to offer uh, over the last hour or so. Uh, For me, at least, it's been very informative and and a a rich discussion. And I hope it uh, begins to identify some paths forward when it comes to the role that China might be able to play in helping Venezuela address not only its humanitarian crisis, but its uh, political, economic, and social crisis. Uh, there are a few things that came out of this discussion which struck me as important. Some are obvious, like the relationship between China and Venezuela is important to China and to Venezuela, but also broadly in terms of China's relationship with Latin America, not only as its largest loan, loan portfolio, but in many ways uh, its largest political commitment. Uh, I think China is, is, understands how it manages its relationship with Venezuela as a bit of a bellwether for how it operates broadly in South America and Central America and and the Caribbean. And I think in this regard, it's important to understand that um, China will not be driven out of Venezuela, Um, and it will not be talked out of Venezuela either unless uh, there is a, an accommodation that protects Chinese interests and allows it to continue to operate uh, easily in the rest of, of South America in, in pursuit of its, its national interests. And this is important to understand because American foreign policy towards Venezuela has been one of isolation. It's been one of attempting to prevent Venezuela from having the political connections, the economic and financial connections necessary for a government to survive. But in a globalized world, especially a world in which an economy the size of China's has determined to play a role inside of Venezuela, that kind of policy of isolation is not going to work. Uh, What it has done, however, is handed uh, to China and to others significant portions of the Venezuelan economy uh, that historically had been connected to the United States. And in this regard, I'm talking about the, the, the energy side of the economy. But there were other aspects of the conversation today that was important. Um, The the assertion that Chinese interest in Venezuela and in the region is not monolithic, uh, that there's a variety of bureaucratic interests at play here, uh, some of whom compete with each other and some of whom have different understandings and and that these different views have to be mediated uh, in Beijing and elsewhere. But also the idea that Adriana presented that China's engagements are also shaped by the individual deals that it does, and by the conditions that are imposed by the countries it's working with. And this actually opens the door because it means that there are a variety of ways in which China can be engaged and a variety of ways in which it can be moved to play a more helpful role in addressing what's happening uh, inside Venezuela. Uh, But I, I was also struck by what Joseph Tucker spoke about because much of popular discussion about the U.S.-China relationship is shaped in terms of great power competition. But what Joseph Tucker was talking about was great power collaboration and great power cooperation. And I think in many ways, the big challenge that we're going to face in the 21st century is not how the United States and China compete. I think the big challenge is going to be how we cooperate and how we collaborate. And how we find a way to keep the peace and ensure that together we can address significant problems, uh, political problems, diplomatic problems, economic problems, uh, that beset not only our two countries, but also the areas in, in which we live. And as the United States and its partners look for ways to bring a a degree of reconciliation to Venezuela, to staunch the flow of refugees, to create a more stable environment across South America and the Caribbean, uh, and to generate the kind of economic growth necessary uh, so that Venezuelan people uh, can begin to be meaningful players in in their own economy and their own politics and return to the kind of democracy and liberty that that from our point of view, uh, has been a a longstanding tradition in in Venezuela and needs to uh, 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 return to Venezuela in in a significant fashion, that China can play a role uh, if its interests are understood and respected and if it's engaged in a meaningful way. Uh, And in this regard, the role of regional institutions, and especially the UN, I think, can be very helpful and useful. Uh, The extent to which uh, we have attempted to block and prevent China from playing a significant role uh, in regional institutions has actually limited what those institutions can do with China uh, and has actually opened a space for the Chinese Development Bank and other Chinese um, institutions uh, that have not been helpful for for U.S. policy. Uh, This was an unintended consequence of U.S. policy, but one that I think should have been anticipated. And in this regard, I believe the United Nations can play a very important role at this point Uh, especially in addressing the refugee issues. But going forward, I would argue that uh, the discussion today has identified several points of important interest, uh, uh, certain points of of knowledge and understanding uh, that can be built upon uh, to fashion a more coherent uh, approach to China inside of Venezuela and a more coherent approach in, in helping China understand that its larger relationship in South America Uh, uh, is at stake and can actually be enhanced if it can participate positively in finding a way out of the conundrum that is contemporary venezuela
1: tom i want to thank you for for your remarks and to all of the participants for your really incredible remarks today this is one of i must say one of the most diverse and compelling panels that I think I've seen. And that's not just to pat ourselves on the back, but it was really remarkable, I think, to have these voices from all over the world and hitting this issue that is so central to the the resolution of the crisis in Venezuela from so many different angles. Uh, At USIP, we continue to believe there is a peaceful, negotiated way forward. We are uh, actively working on that and will continue to do so. And uh, this panel really uh, contributed to some new ideas and new thinking on one key piece of that with uh, the part that China uh, could play in that negotiated way forward. So thanks to all of you. And for all of you that joined us today, this will be on our, our website uh, to go back and rewatch it and pick up all the things that might not have been clear, but uh, really appreciate everyone's uh, remarks and, and participation. And Tom, again, thank you for closing that out with those um, those wrap up remarks. Thank you very
5: much. Thank you for listening
0: to this event.